comes the rain, with my anger comes a tide of emotion, killing joy, cutting steel across your eyes. Hi, this is Brendan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Jeremy Bai for another episode of Righteous Blood Podcast, where we talk about wuxia movies and wuxia books and the game that we've been working on, Righteous Blood, Ruthless Blades, which should hopefully be out in October, we're thinking, but we don't know for sure. And uh, and yeah, so today we're going to be doing Bride with White Hair 1 and 2. Um, we, you know, we... we, we uh, thought that that especially the first movie was was somewhat influential in the book but also just the the style of film that it is we thought made it worthy of of talking about on the program and we both had somewhat different reactions to the movie and to its sequel and so we're going to talk about that as well because i think that'll get into some of our different preferences that were important when we were working on the book and working on the game so so uh jeremy why don't you usher in the first movie and we'll have a little discussion about that and then get into some of our themes. Sure. So, I mean, um, I don't think you mentioned it's, it's based on a pretty popular book and there are other adaptations as well. Like there's a TV series and whatnot, but I think this is the most quintessential one and it's definitely much darker, which is, I think one of the reasons we picked it, uh, matches the theme of, of the game that we were aiming for. And it's a nineties movie that I, I, watched many years ago when I was first getting into uh, the Wuxia stuff. And interestingly enough, uh, in contrast to One-Armed Swordsman, which we did last time, uh, when we talked about One-Armed Swordsman, I said that I didn't like it when I originally watched it. I liked it more this time. Uh, For Bride with White Hair, it was like the opposite. I remember liking it a lot more back in the day when I first saw it. Mm -hmm. And this time, for whatever reason, I didn't like it as much. Now, that's not to say I hated it or something. There's definitely a lot of really cool stuff, really relevant stuff for the game, and just stuff that I liked in general. But overall, for some reason, I was not digging it as much this time. Yeah, and I remember I got into it through... I, I remember picking up a Blockbuster back when there were Blockbusters, <laughs> and that was my first <laughs> encounter with it. And I do remember years later, I came back to it like, like around 2012 or something, I came back to it, kind of like you are now. And I had a slightly different reaction to it, but I still really liked it a lot. But um, I'm curious what... And, and, and the big reaction is I remembered it being way more erotic than it was. Because it's like, it's, bla- it's, it's like emblazoned on the cover, and it's kind of, that's sort of how it's known. And that had grown in my memory. And then when I watched it, I was like, this is fairly tame. You know, they, 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 they probably shouldn't be saying this is an erotic masterpiece on the cover. Um, but <laughs> but I'm, I'm curious what, what it was that you found was different when you went back to it. Because I've noticed that, too, with a lot of these movies. Even if, I just, if it's just a four or five year difference sometimes, I've had quite a different reaction because my head's in a different place. Or I've seen so many more movies that I judge them differently now. Well, um, well, one thing w- was that the scene you're talking about. So there's a, a scene where they're like in the cave, water and stuff like that. And, you know, to be honest, I, that that d- never made much of an impression on me. At least I, I remember that scene happening, but I never thought too much of it. Mm. Uh, I'm guessing that when I s- probably watched this movie, I was 
probably in my 20s, I think, which that's when I kind of started to get into wuxia. And, but this time it was like, that was one of the big turnoff scenes for me. It was just, I think, um, like if I was going to describe it, I would say it makes me think of something that like a couple middle school film students would make as a love scene in like a, a PG-13, like teen, teeny bopper movie or something. It's, it's just so, it was so cringeworthy to me. They're kind of just like rubbed up against each other, sort of. I know there's some about how that scene came to be, but in the end, I was just, I literally just, I was like, just fast forward. Here's, here's how I will describe the scene because I, I paid close attention to it after, after your reaction. Um, so number one, it looks like a lot of early '90s love scenes, which are almost kind of montagey and impressionistic, right? Like they don't. Do you know what I mean? Like, or like, like late eighties, early nineties lovemaking scenes are kind of, they're, they're sort of painted with this really weird brush and they're very hand wavy about how lovemaking actually happens. Do you know what I mean? So it doesn't look anything like real romance between people. And the way that this scene is edited is kind of strange because they have sequences where they're sort of holding each other in an embrace and talking. And those scenes make total sense. But then they intercut them with these montage impressionistic scenes that are uh, definitely not how these kind of scenes are done anymore. And it, it looks, it, it, it does, it, it aged. Uh, I will say that it aged a certain way. Um, it doesn't bother me as much as it bothered you, but I can understand the reaction to it because it's not, it's not how somebody would do it now. And it's not, it's not the style that took hold, I think. And so it just kind of looks odd. Um, but, oh, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. I, I wouldn't say that was like um, necessarily something that killed the movie for me per se. It was just, that was kind of like something that jumped out to me as being odd. I, I often talk about language stuff in, when we talk about these movies, yeah. I'm not going to go into any detail about that. Cause I, that's not really the point of what we're talking about, but that also played a little bit into my reasons for, you know, kind of not liking it as much. It's always different when you're watching it um, and you don't understand what they're saying mm -hmm. and you do. There's It's something I've come to find, obviously, after learning Chinese. So that had something to do with it as well. Um, now, is but, it that are you learning that some of the dialogue in the movies isn't as good as you thought it was or it just as different and therefore changes how you feel about it? It's... Uh, mm, it, a lot of it is because it's well I, I, I you pick up a lot more when you understand what they're actually saying mm -hmm. and a lot of times the the subtitles you know they leave things out one thing I've come to realize over the years and I've, I've thought about um, doing a video about this on my own because I do videos on YouTube about this kind of thing I just realized how poorly the names and titles are translated and I know so many people learn they learn about the Usha genre by watching the movies but there's just such a big disconnect between um, how they tra translate the names, whether it's subtitles or or dubbing, either one, it's just usually completely different from the Chinese. And so I think that's a major aspect of the entire genre that doesn't come across to uh, people who don't understand the language. And then now that I do understand the language, it kind of it doesn't like offend me or something. But I just kind of I kind of think, man, I really wish that that uh, audiences had audiences who are doing subs or dubs had a better I guess. rendition of the dialogue basically but i guess what i'm wondering though is because you're saying it actually changed your impression of of the movie and i've heard you say this about other films too and so because i remember you mentioned it about um heroes of the east i think when we did that one 
what I guess what I'm wondering is, I mean, that's more a critique of the dialogue or not the dialogue, the subtitles, but does it actually, does hearing this movie in the original language somehow more negatively, you know, you know, like you, you react more negatively to the movie because you're seeing it more clearly than before. Do you know what I mean? I totally know what you mean. And I think in this case, it wasn't like that. In this case, I feel like in terms of the tone and whatnot, I think everything pretty much did come across. Okay. So in this case, yeah. The other thing that turned me off to this one, uh, I don't want to harp on the negative aspects too much, was the villain really didn't didn't click with me this time around. Mm. And I understand where they were like aiming for with the villain. But it was like, and I understand that Chinese cinema um, is a lot more over the top a lot of the times but this one for me went over over the top it, okay. it was just like uh, in terms of um the way that they acted i say they because the the villain is a is a i mean we're, we're in spoiler realm here so if any if, if anybody hasn't watched the movie they should probably pause yeah. go watch it and then come back and listen but you know the conjoined twin villains just didn't didn't work for me in terms of their story in terms of mm. their how the girl was like constantly just bursting out into piercing laughter I mean, it's a genre trope i get it but it just it could be that that day i was like really tired so maybe i just didn't have the patience for it but in the end i just wasn't super thrilled with the way they have handled the villain okay no and i and I, I i like the villain i had an opposite reaction but again it's just you know a subjective thing um and i think that it's definitely how can I put it? It's an intense characterization of the character. So it, it does, it, if it's not going to land well with you, it's, it's going to not land well, kind of hard. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I, I, I definitely get that. Um, we probably should mention some, did we mention the plot elements already or did we kind of gloss over that? We did kind of, we kind of glossed over. So maybe we should, yeah. maybe you, you so, can give a little story. Well, so, I mean, it's basically, they take the, the original novel and they pretty much, chuck most of it out the window like this is and the director was intentionally trying to make this more of like a star-crossed lover type uh romeo and juliet type thing there's stuff like that in the original book but it just the 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 book is a it reads much differently than this movie uh, you know is is told and uh and i've seen other movies that are more true to the book but they don't have the same level of emotional resonance i've found whether that's because nobody's nailed it yet or what, I don't know. Or if the book's just hard to render into movie. But I, 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 li- I like this this particular version. And it's basically, she comes from the evil clan. He comes from Wudang, which is like an orthodox clan. And she leaves her sect and suffers really bad consequences for leaving the sect. And through a misunderstanding, she comes to believe that that he doesn't um, that he doesn't trust her anymore, and that he's betrayed her, and they end up as enemies, and her hair turns white, and there's a big battle. I'm I'm not going into the nitty gritty of the details, but it, it, that's the big broad brush strokes. I don't know if there's anything that you want to add to it. No, I think that that pretty much hits all of the beats. Um, and so, and I, and I will assure people there are there are a lot more plot details in there, and it's a uh, and you kind of get into sort of the internal workings of Wu-Dang. And you get to see this really interesting evil cult that... I don't know. I haven't seen too many things like this in, in Wuxia. I've seen them in TV shows and stuff. But not in as many Wuxia movies where they really kind of go into... Um, 
don't know they 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 take the magic pretty far i think with with the evil cult and 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 a lot of the stuff is very very stylized and moody and there's just a heavy atmosphere to it and and then uh and then the sequel basically picks up number 1 it's i think it was directed by somebody else and it was uh, it picks up where this movie leaves off, but then you follow a whole new group of characters who are trying to deal with the Brigitte Lynn Bride with White Hair character who's now like the big evil that's terrorizing the martial landscape. Um, and there's a and there's a flower that blooms once every what is it was it every ten years or every hundred years? I can't remember. But the the I, <laughs> and, and, and the um, and the protagonist has to sit there and guard it until it blooms. And you know, that's sort of the that's sort of the thing that starts at the beginning of the first movie. And then you sort of see at the end of the, of the second movie. Um, yeah. Well, speaking of the second movie, I have to say, I basically really didn't like the second movie. It was like for so many reasons, there were some, a few redeeming parts to it, but in the end, I just really, really disliked it. And was you know, this I your first time on... seeing the sequel, by the way, or was this your second time? Yeah, seeing... so I had okay. never watched the sequel before. Okay. And so I watched it. And incidentally, i got to point out, um, I, I'm i not sure. I, was, I wasn't I was paying too close attention to the original language, um, it, despite what I just said about being able to understand it. I do have to point out that I've, I learned Chinese as a second language, and so it's easy for me to misunderstand stuff in movie dialogue when they're talking really fast and stuff, okay. especially if it doesn't have Chinese subtitles. And it's even worse if they're speaking Chinese and then there's English subtitles because I'm like trying to listen to the Chinese and read the English at the same time. Okay. And anyway, the point is I was very confused about when this movie actually picks up because in the opening scenes, it almost makes it seem like it's happening very shortly after. And it's only later that it confirms it's been like 10 years since I, the ending of the previous movie. I would agree with you that it's confusing. It's not It's not 100% clear, at least for the subtitles. I was confused when I first watched it. Um, yeah, exactly. And I, again, and incidentally, man, the subtitles for this movie were really bad, at least the version that I watched on Amazon. So um, I mean, I'm talking really bad. I, I do want to say something. There's something I want to say about the audio and the subtitles because I noticed it this time around. The version they have on Amazon has really, really good image quality. I, I, it's, it looks like it's there's a Korean version that's really good visually, and I think it might be that one. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but like a Korean DVD or a Korean Blu-ray. Uh, but the sound quality on the first one is really choppy on the one they have on at Amazon. I noticed, and it's not this. And I have uh, a number of different versions of this on DVD and on Blu-ray. And the one that I usually watch has better sound quality, but worse image quality. The image is a little bit more grainy and faded, but I find that the grainy faded look actually works better for this movie than <laughs> because what do they call it? The soap opera effect. I forget. There's effect of the newer TVs and bride with white hair really suffers from that. When you watch it in HD, it loses some of the atmosphere that it's supposed to have. Um, and and so yeah so they're uh, you know definitely don't avoid watching these on Amazon but just be aware that you you might there might be some sound quality issues in the first one and you're watching it in really bright HD so it kind of gets a weird effect I think yeah, um, yeah I agree I mean uh, uh, there's actually a marked difference between quality between the first movie and the second movie that instantly jumped out to me like the second movie I was like wow this looks like it's like a like a more modern movie or yeah. something. But that said, it, I felt it was 
like one of the things, one of the key things that I disliked about this one was the extremely obvious use of the shaky camera fight scene yeah. thing. Like it's which they did so use in the first obvious. one too. They did do that in the first one, but they I, did. Yeah, the direction was reason, better. I think. I think it was better direction. Yeah, I think so. And it, it in this one, it was almost every single fight scene was just. It, I'm like, am I watching a Hollywood movie or something where this is no no um, ability to actually have stunt coordination. Yeah. That was something that, that bugged me, and it makes it worse in the good quality because it's even more obvious yeah. that they're using that technique. And the music as well, the, there was a, a recurring theme that they would use, like a dramatic, like, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, mm-hmm. and they would play it over and over and over again in all the dramatic fight scenes. And then another thing, so this is a complete aside, but... Uh, over the past couple months, I've been on YouTube binging this channel. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called um, it, the channel is called Screen Rant, and they have a segment called Pitch Meetings. And the guy. Will, oh yeah, I've seen those. I've seen those. Okay, yeah. so I've been binging those, and it's just really got me thinking in his way of 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 talking about movies, where it's like he'll just point out the obvious flaws mm-hmm. of the movie in a funny way. And in this movie, it was like every single thing that happened. I was asking myself, why didn't they, like, why are they doing this? Or mm-hmm. why didn't they do this other thing? It just seems so ridiculously contrived. And again, I'm, I'm not saying that all movies have to be like super, like, perfect or something. Yeah. But this, to me, there was just so much stuff that happened that I thought didn't make sense that for me, it kind of ruined. Okay. Yeah, I'm usually pretty forgiving of, like, plot hole stuff, unless... Unless it really leaps out at me, I have to admit though, in this movie, the plot holes didn't really—they didn't—they didn't, you know, like if you mention them, I'll sure I'll be like, yeah, that makes sense what you're saying, but they didn't leap out at me. My my reaction to this movie is, I enjoy this movie. It's a fun Wuxia film with a you know like a group of of characters that feel like I don't know like that like like you pluck them out of the Zhang Hu type thing, and you know it's kind of it's a good example of what a, what Zhang Hu characters might look like. Um I I like getting to see the second half of the of the of where the story has to go from the first movie. Uh but it's just an, it's just not as good as the first film. The first film is very the 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 lovemaking scene aside, it's really like just efficiently paced. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of got like a back to the future type thing where it's really hard to find a scene that they could remove and the the movie wouldn't crumble. Do you know what I mean? And it just keeps getting from point A to point B as it needs to. And this movie is, it feels like it has a lot more room to breathe. And some of that room creates lower quality film in the end. Do you know what I mean? It's still fun and entertaining. It just doesn't, it doesn't rise to the level of the first movie at all, in my opinion. For Um, me, I felt like the pacing was really off. And so again, or I don't think I mentioned this. I had literally no expectations going into. It. I didn't even know what it was about. Mm-hmm. I'd never read a review. You hadn't even mentioned anything other than, "Oh, it's Bride with Light Hair too." I was like, "Cool." <laughs> I I didn't watch a preview or anything. So I go in. I'm watching the movie, and you know, it's like showing Bride with Light Hair, and then yeah. he's on the mountain with a flower. I'm like, "This is gonna be awesome." Yeah. Then it shifts to like a comedy wedding movie for a while. Then all of a sudden people are dying. And then it turns into like a quest movie. Then it turns into a heist movie. And all. And it took me a good 15 to 20 minutes. And I'm like, wait a second. I get what's going on here. So they had enough money to pay Leslie Chung for like two scenes. <laughs> and then the rest of the movie is going to everybody else. And then finally it gets to the end. And we sort of resolve the story between the yeah. two. That part I thought was really good. 
I almost just kind of wish that they had just done a little summary and then like skipped to that part because I felt like it would be better. I understand it would have lacked a lot of the impact of of how they ended up in that situation, but the pacing was just all off as opposed to the first one, which was a, a little bit lighthearted at the beginning, but I would say for the most part, pretty dark throughout. Yeah, even the lighthearted scenes are like everything feels cohesive in the first movie and the second movie, everything feels like you were saying, it's like, I enjoy being able to go to a film and watch like eight different types of movies. So that's kind of why part two appeals to me in some ways, but it definitely makes something that's just a lot more patchwork feeling. And, and, and also the fact that you get introduced to Leslie Chun again, Leslie Chung again, but you, you suddenly have to shift focus to these new characters that you've never met before when you have all, it's sort of like you came to the movie because of Leslie Chung and, and Bridget Lin. And so why would you suddenly want to watch new characters? And you kind of have to get over that the whole first part of the movie. And 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 that's, I think that's something that really, like in sequels, that's like just a big misstep. Do you know what I mean? It can really, you know, because you're banking on people liking the new characters. Um, and yeah, so, so it's... And then, it, and then you find out, ma- sorry, major spoilers here. If you, if you're, if you want to, you can skip ahead two minutes or something, but... Basically, then you essentially find out that the main character and his the gang of friends, the gang of friends are extras in a horror movie, basically, because they all die. <laughs> and you like get all, you kind of do get invested in some of their characters, and they die. But it, what, to me, it wasn't the kind of thing where like I got invested, and then I was like, oh man, I can't believe they died. It was more like, why did you make me get invested in this character when it was clearly just going to be like cannon fodder or something like that? Okay, okay. There was one death in there That's- I remember being somewhat moving. But uh, uh, the other ones were kind of... That said, though, one good aspect of it, um, I don't want to just trash the movie, one good aspect that we kind of mentioned in our email was the how there's kind of like this party of heroes, and that is definitely a good crossover when you're talking about games, because a lot of times, Wushu movies are not about that, um, which I imagine could make it hard for um, a, a group trying to run a Wusha campaign and they're watching these movies and there's never ever really like the party of heroes um, as opposed to this one. It really did have that, a group of kind of diverse people with unique characteristics and fighting styles and whatever that all sort of works together. And I think there's even one dramatic entrance scene where like they're all teamed up and that was pretty cool. Well, and I think that, that was actually one of the big reasons why I wanted to do these two movies because like he was saying the the second movie it's like a party of characters that you could easily see being this would be a campaign or an adventure in a you know typical rpg the first movie would be really hard to pull off as an rpg you wouldn't you like and and i think this is something that a lot of people have trouble with when they try to run wuxia sometimes they treat wuxia a little differently than they treat other source material when they're trying to turn it into a gameable content and by that i mean they, a lot of people get this idea in their head that it has to 100% match the books. Do you know what I mean? Or 100% match the movies. But we don't ever do that with like fantasy RPGs or crime RPGs. Do you know what I, mean? they're, they're, I mean, we give them more room to sort of accept that this is a game and there are going to be certain game conceits present. Do you know what I mean? And so the thing I like about the second movie as an idea for uh for a campaign or an adventure is it's it's a situation it's a it's it's you can sort of picture a map where you have the bride's you know man-hating cult and you know she's at war with the remnants of wudang and 
the players are these young initiates of Wudong, and that would make a really great campaign. It doesn't make for a five-star movie, but it makes for a really solid campaign foundation where what the players do, where they decide to go, how they decide to take on this enemy could go in all kinds of different directions. And the GM wouldn't have to force anything on them to make it interesting. Whereas if you tried to do the first movie, I don't, I mean, you can do it without railroading, but I think most GMs who watch that film are going to be inclined to railroad it if they try to turn it into an adventure. Um, and, And that's something that we, we talked a lot about when we were trying to, we wanted to bring Wuxia to the gaming table, but we wanted to do it in a way that, you know, allowed, you know, player agency to remain intact and things like that. And so, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you had any thoughts about that, but. um... Yeah, well, I totally agree that I think the second movie is, I mean, you could take the movie and take all the elements, like you said, and turn that into a campaign super easy it's essentially, you know, a sect war with some grudges thrown in and a, a heist built into it and then a showdown. Another interesting aspect that correlates to our game is that we, especially with the, the adventures we put into the into the rule book, we, in some cases, intentionally have, character, uh, have bad guys that are probably going to be way higher level than the main characters to the point where the main characters probably could not beat them, which is yeah. exactly what happens in the movie. And in the movie, essentially, they have to get help from somebody else to yeah. win in the end. And we kind of have that element in there because I don't think this is the only movie where only Wushu movie where it's like that. Uh, the the heroes are not necessarily always going to be evenly matched up. And, you know, as opposed to maybe your typical Dungeons and Dragons module where you're anticipating a villain showdown in the end with a big fight, that might not necessarily be what you want with the with the Wushu adventure well we even have i think we have an adventure in the book where we even say like the characters will need to form alliances in order to to get through this um and uh and also to get back to the first movie i think if if you did want to game it my based on my experience maybe you'll have different experience than me but if i saw this movie was like i need to have this in my game what i've realized is with storylines like that you have to wait for them to kind of start happening on their own before you can really bring in any kind of stuff that would be inspired by this kind of storyline. Like I had a, I had a campaign where the players went to uh, a temple that was, uh, was like where, where these nuns had this, this, this sword artifact that they wanted. And it was kind of, you know, it was kind of like the heaven sword dragon saber type thing. Do you know what I mean? So they, they had like the heaven sword basically. And one of the players befriended one of the nuns and then he initiated a romance with her and then eventually that led to this massive conflict because the nun had left the sect for this guy and brought the sword to them and and that and it eventually brought us to sort of bride with white hair type territory uh that character actually became my version of the white-haired bride in the rule book that i made for ogre gate um but uh but so i think i think the the key is to kind of realize that there are opportunities for this kind of development in a game, but be very wary of sort of, you know, making it happen. Do you know what I mean? Uh, you know, just so you want to, you want things to like, you want this kind of story to unfold a bit organically, I think in a, in an RPG. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, if, if, uh, a, a, Game Master went in with the idea of like, okay, I want to I want to recreate Bride with White Hair or at least get something really close to that. I think it would 
be too hard. And um, the only way it might work would be if the players were um, sort of like side characters as that thing played out, and then yeah. maybe they could interfere. But it, it wouldn't work if they were the main characters and you just tried to make it happen. But I think what you just said is spot on. And this is a perfect kind of movie where Game Master can watch it and, you know, however your style is, if you keep notes or if you do everything mentally, just have that in your mind for a scenario like you talked about. And one of the key things of the movie that I think is important is the misunderstanding. And just, I mean, it, to some extent, it's a misunderstanding. To some extent, it's, it's not. It's very Bluebeard. Um, it's a very Bluebeard type thing where it's like, don't go in. You can go anywhere in the house, but this room. And if you go in that room, we're going to, you know, it's that kind of a thing where she's like, yeah. you can know, there's one thing that really drives me crazy. And if you do that, I, I don't know what I'll do. And, and that's yeah. kind of, that's kind of how it ends up. So um, maybe in a game that would be a bit heavy handed, but, but, you know, getting involved in a, having the players get involved in a romance that turns bad is a great thing to pull from this movie. And actually this comes to something I wanted to talk about and something I wanted to ask you about, because um, to some extent, romance plays kind of a big role in the game that we created, not in the sense that there's like a game mechanic, but we created a very large cast of characters and there are a lot of romantic connections between yeah. them. And so I wanted to ask your experience having romance in games, how you envision it um, playing out here. And um, I have a backup question, a, a secondary question about romance that I'll get to once you give me your okay. initial thoughts. So so number one, when, when this book comes out, people will see there are a lot of romantic storylines in some of the NPCs. And most of those are probably from my end because I tend to be very romantically minded when I write stuff, especially with wuxia. I just, I, I like wuxia movies that have romantic plots to them. And I wanted to bring that into the game. And it's probably good that Jeremy was there to, to sort of stay my hand sometimes and make sure I wasn't doing it constantly. But uh, I think but, there was a certain point when I, I emailed you and I was like, you know what? I think all of our characters have romantic uh, storyline. Maybe we should throw in some different ones. Yeah. And he, and he said it early enough too, that we were able to kind of steer the, I, I, I got, I think we got just enough based on when you made that. Yeah. Well, cause I, at that point I, we were both creating characters simultaneously. And I remember I had thrown in some as well. So it wasn't just you. It was, yeah. it was both. But I mean, I think I definitely was more guilty of it than, than you were. Um, the, uh, so, so I'm sorry, what was your question again? I want to make sure I answer. Just I... Uh, your experience with having romance in, in Wuxia games specifically, and also how you kind of envision it um, being used yeah. in the game that we made. Yeah, I mean, I've used it for sure, just like in the example I mentioned. Um, and I, I totally allow it. I, so I had that campaign, which was the very first Ogre Gate campaign, actually. And it was Bill's character who fell in love with the, the Haiping nun. And they didn't actually have like a bad romance. It it was it was fine. It's just that like Lady Whiteblade came and killed him, and you know, and sent the other character off on a on a rage. But I also had a character who started a sect and ended up marrying, kind of out of political convenience, with like the daughter of another sect leader. Do you know what I mean? And I and then in another campaign, we had similar types of things happen. And I had two player characters that I think ended up as a couple in the game. But the the thing is, I think you do have to be careful with it. It's not something where like, you know, we don't, we, we don't have like any mechanics in there for, you know, how you should be careful. But just as a general thing, I think you have to know everybody's comfort level. I always, number one, always anything sexual would obviously be off camera. Do you know what I mean? Um, and 
And you don't want to force romantic storylines onto players, you know, unless they've expressed an interest in them, I think, or unless they've initiated them somehow, because that can feel very awkward for people if they're uh, if they're put on the spot like that or if they just are uncomfortable with it. So I think you have to feel the room. You have to know your players. And, you know, some groups have no interest in romance and that's fine. You don't need to pursue it. Some groups will have an interest in it. And I think, you know, even if they're not engaging in it, the, uh, you know, you, you might have characters around them that are married or whatever, or have some kind of romantic drama. Uh, but the one thing that I will say is when you have a campaign that goes on long enough, so if you have a very long-term campaign, I think that's when romance almost kind of just starts coming up on its own without really any reason for, you know, like the GM doesn't need to introduce it, the players don't need to introduce it because the the player characters will start getting older and they'll start just thinking of other goals aside from, you know, whatever it is they were pursuing early in their career. So in one of the campaigns where a character got married, it was because he had reached, he had achieved all the things in the Zhang Hu that you want to achieve. And he was like, and now I need to have like a family or something to carry on my legacy. Do you know what I mean? So it was that sort of a thing. And, and, uh, and I think when you're the GM in those kind of circumstances, you have to be very, very fair in how you adjudicate it. You can't just say, Oh, here's an opportunity for me to give him like a really tricky spouse who's going to backstab him at every turn. You know, you have to like, the way that I would tend to do it is I would, I would, you know, in, in this campaign, the way that it worked is it was again, a little bit more political. So the marriages were kind of, okay, here are some people I know would make appropriate matches for me, the sect leader of this organization. And so I tried to create or, uh, or if they were in the setting already, I tried to, you know, sort of establish, uh, you know, like I, I basically tried to give the player a chance to figure out who these people were and form a rational judgment about whether they would make a good spouse or not. Do you know what I mean? And and so I think you just have to, you know, again, adjudicate it fairly and you have to be uh, you have to know if, if you have if you have characters that are romantically involved with NPCs, you have to know those NPCs motivations really well so that nothing that you do with them seems contrived. It's all got to kind of flow from the character. Do you know what I mean? If you do have a wife that betrays a husband or a husband that betrays a wife, it should make sense. It shouldn't just be there because you wanted a betrayal plot beat. Um, so I don't know. Does that answer the question or is that, uh, yeah. yeah. And I mean, we have, a like, we have plenty of stuff built into the game um, to accommodate for pretty much any scenario. I think, like, I mean, for instance, like one of the uh, things that a character could start out with, start out with as a social resource, is devoted ex-lovers. So, if you yeah. wanted to have a character who was kind of a either a, a playboy or maybe you know just uh, having a string of relationships, you could start that way. Yeah. We also have plenty of NPCs who are um, like we have. Uh, sort of a seductress character that's in there. We have a, a person who easily falls in love. And so if the, the GM is using the characters we provided, it would be super easy to work that in. Um, anyway, I had a follow-up. So about, so to my follow-up question, this kind of touches on a, a number of different points. But, uh, you know, one of the things that we talked about as we were over the years that we were making this game is different role-playing styles and whatever. 
And obviously anybody who's even remotely involved in the role-playing game scene knows about the, you know, wild success of Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition. And and some people may or may not be aware of the Mercer effect because Matt Mercer is this really famous and popular GM and he has his own style and, and you know, he's a, you know, a voice actor. So he can bring something to the GM thing that a lot of GMs probably couldn't. And so I'm curious your thoughts about that in terms of romance. Because so I've played with I've played in your games with you as the, the GM yeah. and I know I know your style and you do role playing but you're you know you're not like doing um, voices and yeah all I'm that not I'm not a, I'm not a big voice you know why because one time one time I tried to do a uh, I tried to do an, a, I think it was an Italian priest in a mafia campaign for my Crime Network game and everybody thought oh. I was doing an Irish accent and I was like <laughs> okay. I you know I am I am not built for this. Um, also, I don't I I kind of get annoyed at the voices that like I don't mind people getting excited and into the character. I think that's fun, but sometimes I feel like it becomes it's too much acting sometimes for my taste. Do you know what I mean? I think there's like a there's a level of acting in RPGs where I'm like, and again, this is just total personal preference. I'm not a, I'm not trying to crap on people who like acting, but I feel like we've now kind of entered into LARPing territory if we're going to be acting this much. And so, uh, yeah. So anyways, a lot of it has to do, a lot of it I think has to do with the group because I mean, like for example, with the example, with critical role, they're all voice actors and and, and they're performing. So that's different. But if you're at the table with your friends, if all the friends are into it and all the friends are kind of doing it fine, but I'll give you an example from real life. So I'm part of a fifth edition campaign right now. And I decided I was going to try it. I was like, I'm going to try, I'm playing a noble, and so I just, I'm, I'm doing a, an, a British accent to go along with this noble. And it's actually working pretty well, but it, it's a little weird because I'm the only one at the table doing an accent. Okay. And so, like, everybody else is just being like, okay, my character uh, says that he wants some beer or something. And then I'm yeah. coming in trying to do an accent. It's a little bit odd. Anyway, I get what you're saying. Let me make my – I never got to my second point, though. So uh, what I wanted to ask you about specifically was how you handle role-playing r- – role-playing romance when you when you're the npc and then you have a person at the table who is interacting with that npc because i've had situations the reason i brought up the matt mercer thing is because he does it in in his games in which he will become a woman and then he's interacting and flirting with somebody and i had a situation once where i was where i was dming and like my players wanted to flirt with these girls or something and i was i started to role play the girls and then all of a sudden i'm like flirting with my yeah. friend and I was like, "All right, forget it. I'm not role playing this. We're just gonna. I'm just gonna tell yeah, you." Yeah, it's happened. it's awkward. I get that. Um, so number one, I don't do like the female voice or anything like that if I'm doing it. So I don't really. I, I probably don't run into the same level of discomfort that you might if you're. Do you know what I mean? Trying to play the character like that, but I, I don't know. I mean, I think it varies. It really depends on the situation. Like everybody has a level of discomfort with that sort of thing, depending on where. You know what I mean? At a certain point, everybody's gonna get uncomfortable. And so I, I interact as much in character as I'm comfortable acting. And then I switch to second person or third person or whatever. Sorry. Yeah. Third person. Um, and you know, I don't know. I I play it by ear. I don't, I used to be very adamant that I was always speaking in first person in games, but then the more I thought about it, the more I was honest about how I play, I shift in and out depending on comfort level. And I think that's kind of how that is a handy tool for okay i'm not really comfortable flirting with this player character because this is somebody i know in other contexts and it just feels weird so i'm going to shift to third person now 
you know what I mean? And and I think that's fine for romance. Do you know what I mean? Especially for NPCs, because you, you can say, oh yeah, she lowers her head and looks bashful, or she, you know, she seems a little bit put off by your comment, or whatever it is. You can, you know, you you, you don't, you know, you can you can speak about it in third person, and you know, I I think I think the key is to get do as much as you're comfortable with, and then that's that's all you need to do. And and you know, obviously, if if uh um if 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 somebody is crossing a line, you got to tell them. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's that's another thing. Uh, I also just wanted to say about voices, I will say I was in Rob Conley's game, and he 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 does Majestic Wildlands and stuff like that, and he's a, um, a really great GM, and he he uh, he does voices, and he 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 does them in a way that that I find entertaining and works. So I think in the hands of the right GM, it can it can be fine, but but I find it very exhausting to have to do them myself. I've tried to do them, and it just kind of it kind of tires me out. Um, yeah, I think it just depends on the you, you know place as a GM. You got to play to your skill set, and uh, it, I'll, I'll finish out the romance thing by just saying that I think, in addition to everything you said, which I agree with, I think that um, it's important for the GM and the players to all be on the same page before. Um, you actually start rolling the dice. In other words, like, I mean, obviously, if you have an established group, you don't need to do that. But if you're getting a bunch of people together, like, let's play a Wusha game, there should be a session zero probably where you sit down and kind of say, what are the expectations? Yeah. Like, and everybody's on the same page. Because we do have some big NPCs, even ones that are in the adventures we provide, who would be very likely, I think, to be inclined to interact romantically with a, with a player if that was a direction the yeah. GM and the players were interested in going, but as long as everybody's on the same page and that needs to happen before the situation arises, ideally. Yeah, no, that's definitely the case. I mean, there are characters in the game that they could be used in that way. Uh, you don't have to, though. Like, even some of the most romantic characters, they could still just serve as a romantic backdrop more than anything else. But you can definitely... You know, those arrows can be pointed at player characters if the player characters are open to it. Um, and, uh, yeah, so what... Uh, I think I think the next topic that we were going to discuss after romance was magic because that does come up in uh in this movie. And obviously magic is a tricky one in wuxia because movies are a little different than books it seems. Like the movies have sort of followed their own evolution versus the evolution of the books and both have kind of had different levels of magic at different points, right? Uh but generally speaking wuxia is kind of low magic, right? It's generally any of the magic that exists is usually related to martial arts principles. It's not even really magical. It's more, this is a martial arts principle that actually works when you apply it correctly. And so that is the, you know, that is the conceit that allows for superhuman feats and stuff. But you will see some really, you know, things that really bend our expectations of physics and things like that. So, um, so I guess, number one, what's your, your feeling about the use of magic in Bride with White Hair? And number two, we can talk about, you know, the game itself and how we approach magic. I mean, I, I felt that it was so sort of, in my opinion, at least, sort of like seamlessly woven into that the action and the plot that it didn't jump out as being odd to me in any way. And I think that this is exactly why we include, so we included a, a little skill called magical arts. We, we didn't want to get into 
you know, super magic cultivation, you know, casting spells and rituals and all that stuff, just because we were aiming for a more grounded wuxia that doesn't have that stuff. But yeah. we did include an option to add a little bit of that flavor, and that's exactly yeah. why. We didn't want it to have it be a super big thing, but for those characters who want to maybe have some kind of curse or some kind of uh, divination or something that we do allow for that. What specific scenes were you thinking about in the first one that jumped out to you? Well, I mean, like the evil cult body shifting scene um, where the, the man becomes a woman and then I think vice versa. And then there's also the... And again, this is maybe not quite... Like, that was clearly magic. That was some kind of magical thing or maybe possibly sleight of hand in some way. Like, maybe it was magic as we would understand it, like a stage magic thing put on for you know, the benefit of the people that were present. I don't know. But so, so I guess that's another possibility, but also the, the sect leaders seem to be able to get people to, uh, to perceive what he or she wanted them to perceive. So like, so like at one point the, the sect leader is, is masquerading as the leader of Wudong when he's talking to, um, uh, to, to, to Leslie Chung's character. And, and, uh, I think that, uh, there were probably there must have been a couple of other little bits of magic sprinkled in here or there, but I feel like I feel like it's really that body shifting scene that always stands out to me is oh okay this movie has magic in it do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, it's hard to I mean so, especially with movies it's sometimes hard to figure out where the line is between what are they doing that's fancy martial arts stuff and what are they doing that goes beyond that and. I think when you bring that into a game, the key is, again, kind of what I talked about before in terms of the, the agreement between the, the, the players and also the fact that uh, you can, you know, if like if you're emulating a movie and everybody's on the same page, then that's pretty easy. We, we talked about this, I'm pretty sure, last time about the genre physics. That's essentially what we're, what we're talking about in our genre physics section is how much uh, magic do you want, how much yeah. over-the-top stuff. How much romance do you want? All that stuff kind of plays into the setting that you're playing in. Well, yeah, because like, are you doing Buddha's palm and the bastard swordsman, or are you doing one arm swordsman and come drink with me? You know, those are yeah. those are very different styles of wuxia. Um, one thing, I mean, another thing that plays into it, in my in my opinion, is that I feel like the filmmaking technology and special effects technology has a lot to do with this. The early TV shows and movies of the classic Wuxia novels, whether you're talking about Condor Heroes or whatever, are pretty, I feel like they're pretty down to earth. But then you get into the, I would say the maybe 2000s and stuff, they start getting really fantastic. They do. And it's hard to tell when you read the novels what Jin Yong envisioned, but because there's some definitely some very fantastic things well, that happen. And it's not until I feel like they got into CGI that okay, all of a sudden so, they have dragons flying through the air and that I, stuff. A cu couple of points. So number one, that's actually a lot more complicated, though, than people think the history of that. Because if you go back even further, you go back, like, you know the movies that we think of as early wuxia, like Come Drink With Me and The Temple of the Red Lotus? Those are part of, those were a new wave of martial arts movies that sure, were intended yeah. to be more grounded, right? And before that, if you look at a lot of the martial arts movies that were coming out, that were in black and white and stuff, they had a lot of magic in them. Do you know what I mean? And again, true, I'm yeah, not that's... as familiar with those movies, but I've seen enough clips of them and, you know, I'm familiar with some of them that you see more magic kind of sprinkled into them than you do in those like Shaw Brothers, uh, you know, new Wuxia films from the 60s. So I feel like, I feel like we've kind of also absorbed a narrative that might not be 100% accurate 
Um, and, and I, again, I think, I think I, but, but I think like the more important thing is kind of what you were saying with, it really boils down to what were the authors intending when they, when they write about this stuff. And some of the scenes in a, in, 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 in like a Condor Heroes or something, if you imagine them a certain way, they do come across as having a more magnificent effect. I feel like though, if you're in a Gulong book, it's more like James Bond, where you'll get something fantastical, but it'll actually have a really logical explanation for why it functions the way it does. Um, and so you might get something that on first glance you think is some kind of super powerful weapon, but in actuality, it's just like a, um, a really ingenious mechanical device or something like that. Um, and I, I think I think a good movie that, that you could sort of hold up as crossing the line in a big way is Web of Death. Which is interesting because it it sort of takes Heaven Sword, Dragon Saber, and a few other Condor Heroes uh, sections, and I think a little bit of Gulong, and sort of blends them together, but it throws in a lot of fantastical elements. Um, so, so well, I don't. Interesting. If, oh, go ahead. Whenever I think about the magic stuff, is uh, I always think of make sure I get them right because I sometimes get Romance of the Three Kingdoms and Water Margin. Uh, switched up it's definitely water margin so one of the characters in water margin or outlaws of the marsh whichever you translate the title as he is a he i believe he's described as a sorcerer i can't remember his name but he literally will like if i remember correctly and it's been years but in the novel he will like summon storms and things like that so it's a clearly like magical in the sense of like wizards and sorcery so like that kind of stuff obviously has been in the chinese you know realm of thought in terms of entertainment for like a really really long time and the question for me is oh and then that's not even getting into the whole Taoism thing with yeah. you know exercising demons and whatever different stuff so my question is i'll give you an example which is um let's say uh in chinese uh, the 19 jag or uh Shibajang, 18 dragons subduing palms from uh, condor heroes it's in both of them because yeah. guazing learns it and then i'm pretty sure Yang Qi, uh, uh, I think they both learn it. But anyway, the point is like, I vividly remember having watched, I'm pretty sure the nine, I forget, there's so many versions. I'm getting confused thinking about this off the top of my head. But the older version of the Condor Heroes TV show, which I had seen, was pretty mundane in terms yeah. of the effects. And then the the one that came out with Liu Yifei, I'm pretty sure. Guozing uses the 18 dragons to doing palms in one of the early scenes. And it's like, there's literally, you know, like dragons flying through the yeah. air. And, like, and I was like, what? Like at the time I thought it was super, super, super cool. But then that's kind of what I'm getting at. The question is what was the author intending and what yeah. do the players in the GM in terms of the game, like what are they envisioning that as when they envision um, the attacks that we created, yeah. like they're pretty I fantastic, guess. but we don't intend them to be magical like we have yin yang stuff and five element yeah. stuff but in our um game those are intended to just be martial arts stuff not magic but yeah. i can see how there is kind of well, a gray line between those well two. i think the thing about the dress so i mean i think that stuff i do like that stuff and i and obviously i incorporated some of it into ogre gate so i like it a lot clearly but i think in terms of just how faithful that is this i think mo most of the time you know, just from memory, the 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 Condor Hero stuff seems to be more like the like the dragons are doing palm thing. 
is is much more energy based, right? It's not it's not literally supposed to be dragons coming out of your hands and you know and and so I feel like I feel like what happened in I forget which series it was, but it's like those series that came out in the two thousands. Uh, I think it was like you were saying the special effects driving things a little bit, and what maybe started out is a really stylized depiction of something that it just like in most of the versions I'd seen earlier, it was like you might see like smoke coming out of the guy's palm, or you might see like clearly they're having some kind of physical effect on the trees from a distance and things like that. But uh, so, I mean, it's obviously getting to a level that's beyond what we would think of as normal martial arts, but it's still, you know, it's still rooted in, you know, these core martial arts principles that are, present in a lot of wuxia fiction so uh, i don't know i i i'm pretty my my feeling on it is is this you you have to decide what the dial is for whatever campaign you're you're running and obviously the default for righteous blood is going to be a lot more to the mundane level than a lot you know than it might otherwise be but we were mainly the places that we allowed for magic were with special items because those can easily be removed from the game. Do you know what I mean? More than the techniques. I don't I, I don't think we have any overtly magical techniques. There might be one that's actually tagged with a magic parenthetical sort of marker. Um, but I think we were definitely thinking more Gulong anyways. So, you know, we really wanted to kind of keep things more rooted in the mundane. But But what I will say is this. Every every everything in a game like this and everything in a campaign when you're a GM has upsides and downsides. So if you decide to allow for a lot of magic, if you decide to allow for a lot of like monsters and creatures, one thing that that does for you is it immediately opens up all these doors that would be closed for adventure purposes. So uh, you know, it, it, it you know I think it's it's you know. What what when when we were playtesting this game, I found it perfectly easy to run a campaign without magic. You know, it, it's it's not an issue, and I I think it can be done. But it is more of a challenge than if you had magic in it. So there is that added level of challenge that results from not, from not having the uh, the higher levels of magic or the monsters or whatever. Um, so it's just something to be aware of. You know that you know throughout the process of making this game everything we did was a choice and and you know we always saw like every choice has good sides and bad sides and you are trying to make the choices that make the most sense for the game um so so i don't know is that did i go off on a tangent or did i address no, I think what... that's that's great and i just i'll add one final thing which is that um i think that um shoot i just lost my train of thought what was i gonna say <laughs> you were talking about magic and i had one more thing i wanted to say Oh, I know. Uh, so I did a poll on Twitter the other day. If anybody out there is listening, you can track me down, I'm sure, and find that. I, I asked my audience why they thought, at the moment, it seems like cultivation and xianxia stuff it seems to be a lot more popular than wuxia, at least in the terms of the translated novels and, and the TV shows as well. Like a lot of the, a lot of the TV shows coming out of China, there's not a lot of super popular wuxia right now. It's all and, the... And even the wuxia movies or the wuxia shows are throwing in a lot of Shan Sha yeah. stuff. 
Yeah. And obviously, you know, my Twitter poll that had a few hundred people respond is not going to be like the ultimate explanation, yeah. but the the vast majority of people responded that they liked the cultivation novels more because they're more fantastic. Okay. So I think that that's that's a factor. But on the other hand, and I know there's there's Santiago cultivation role playing games out there. I think that pulling that off in a role playing game is is a lot harder because to truly emulate that the levels of magic need to go way, yeah. way beyond reality and building that into a mechanical structure for role-playing games is going to be hard. I ran into that problem big time with Ogregate because I initially wanted to make a, a sup, which I'm still going to do, but I had an idea for a supplement where the game, the foundations of the game sort of allow for Shansha-like levels much higher up, but I, I didn't expand on it. And so I started working on expanding on it and, and I realized I could get to like zoo of magic mountain level but getting up to those shan sha levels where they're like cosmic scale is it was really i i didn't even want to think about it do you know what i mean just because it's 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 a like i don't know maybe maybe you can give people a visual example to explain to them like just how massive shan sha scales can get compared to a regular fantasy rpg even i mean for people who are not familiar they're gonna be like blown away i mean so just to put it into context i had an artist create a depiction of something from one of the novels i'm translating and this depiction comes from only something like um a couple hundred chapters into a story that's like 15 1600 chapters and essentially the main character goes starts out on a planet but it's not even a planet it's a continent which is imagined like a flat earth kind of thing that's a, the remnant of a shattered planet but the, but that's part of another system. That's part of another system, part of another system. And then the depiction I have is something called the central planetary river, where the two main character, uh, the main character and his friend kind of arrive and they see what is essentially like millions of planets and around a central, like kind of a sun, but it's not a sun. It's a, it's a collection of thousands of planets that shine brightly. And this is the only level like, or sorry, this is only chapter like 300. It goes on to the point where, you know, characters can literally destroy um, essentially what I would say are solar systems and then galaxies with one hit. So it's exactly what you say. How to create something that's a game system that takes care because usually in, the, in these novels, the characters start out at level one as like an a ordinary mortal. So how to go from that to the cosmic scale and be, yeah. it's even beyond the cosmic scale, to be honest. It's, I've thought about it a lot too and I just, it kind of blows my mind. I mean, you could definitely do it. I just feel like it would be like, it's not the kind of system that I'm generally inclined to make, which would be a much more tiered system. Like, you know, there's like the, the, the mundane level one world and there's like the next level. And then like, you just kind of have these not, not like discrete levels like you would think of in a normal game, but just more like these are the different scales of power that exist in the world. Um, yeah. And it's, it's not as if no one's ever done anything like this. I mean, yeah. like, one thing that struck me initially with when I was um, getting well, getting into Call of Cthulhu is how the, the they you know have gods and stuff. Yeah, They're just yeah. immensely powerful. Or I know that Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition just released a book about gods and stuff. I haven't even looked at it, so I don't know how they handled it. And I know that, like I mentioned, there are some people who have put together cultivation or ciencia kind of um, stuff. But I, I don't know. I still think that there has yet to be something that really nails it nails it the way that i would like to see it well 
and again, I'm getting a little off topic here, but I think that's one of the that's one of the perpetual problems of Wuxia and any niche genre in general for gaming, which is like you and I. I forget when we met. It must have been like three years ago at this point or something. But was it 2017? No, because four? actually we met before my son was born, and he's now almost five. Oh well, so. okay. So time's flown. So so, yeah. but the point I was going to make is. Prior to that, we had been off in our own little private worlds, just, you know, being fans of the stuff on our own in our own way. And by the time we met, we had totally different points of view on, you know, why we were there and what we wanted and what would make for a good game or a bad game and all that. And so one of the things that you run into when you put out a game like this or when you go on, you know, when you're a fan of games like this and you're looking for games to buy is that it's really hard to connect the the game to that very particular set of sensibilities that any one person has um and and i don't i don't know how you really get around that i think i think the ideal situation is the more games are out there the better because when i was before i was making games and when i was just trying to run wuxia games what i was always wanting was just to have more wuxia games available so that i could take bits and pieces from different ones and make my ultimate sort of experience of a campaign. Um, but in terms of Shansha, you know, I managed to get up to like essentially an Ogre Gate level 100 with some of my deities. But the problem is the it just didn't match the Shansha scaling. I can I can do I can do more like a journey to the west type of level of power than a Shansha yeah. type level of power in my game. To be perfectly um, honest, I I suspect that the number of I mean this is just pure speculation, but I have the feeling that the number of people who are into tabletop role playing games, but at the same time have actually read a lot of the that high level stuff, I suspect that number is very very low because I whenever I run into people talking about like the Sansia cultivation stuff in the context of tabletop role playing games. I think a lot of those people don't even know the difference between Wuxia and Xianxia, and they think Xianxia is just like people flying on swords, maybe, and like they yeah. shoot like like well, beams it, of light. But it's definitely way beyond that. It took it took me a while to wrap my head around Xianxia. I remember when I because I first the, my first encounter with it was I was a fan of Wuxia television series, and there were these ongoing sort of debates among um, among among fans about the rising level of magic and wuxia series and so the term that started getting using was they're doing too much shansha and so it just became a synonym in a lot of conversations for magic essentially you know the magical side of wuxia or the you know this is magic beyond wuxia anything beyond you know you know using like you know shooting like chi energy out of your palm or something would have been considered shansha by a lot of people in the conversation so I, yeah, I totally you know, agree. And for anybody who's listened to this point that wants more information about that, my YouTube channel is, you know, youtube.com slash deathblade. And I have a bunch of videos talking about what are these things, how they um, are portrayed in the novel, and blah, 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 all that yeah. stuff. And you also have a handy guide, too, I think, at the website that you're translating at the Wusha World website. Um, yeah. Which which is it's a very useful overview of the different genres. Um, so... So yeah, so I guess another topic that we should be discussing here, we're probably going to have to cut it a little bit short because we've already been going for an hour, so we probably won't get to every topic we wanted to cover. But um, but the overall darkness level of this movie, 
Um, the first movie in particular, obviously the second movie is visually dark, but it has a lot of humor in it that kind of disrupts the atmosphere. Uh, the first film, I, 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 when I was listening to the music this time around, I noticed it really reminds me of the opening music to the original Terminator movie because it's got that percussive beat in the background and it has this kind of martial theme melodically it's not the same as the Terminator uh, drum or the Terminator melody, but it's got that same level of darkness to it, I felt. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but that was something that I really picked up on right away this time was the the music at the very start. I felt like maybe they were deliberately trying to emulate the Terminator with that, um, but it was just speculation. Um, I'll respond, but before I do, I just want to point out that... Um... This is being recorded during COVID-19 lockdown and we're all like my son yeah. is here 24-7. I can hear him kind of like yelling and screaming in the background. So sorry about that, but you can blame it on the virus. Um, to go into answering your question, I, you know, I, that didn't even occur to me that the, that music stuff. Um, I know you're like a musician and are a lot more in tune with that. So I, I didn't even consider that. So I'm not going to comment on it. But what I will say is that... Um, I think so righteous blood ruthless blades is being billed as dark wusha and i think this is really like one of the perfect examples for what we intended um in terms of calling it dark wusha because as for example the lethality of the combat uh, that's in there as well in in bride with white hair actually one and two i would say um it's p characters a lot of times are getting killed with two hits and that's yeah. kind of how we wanted it to be not a Thing where they're going back and forth with their swords clashing forever but more like if you're not on top of your game you're gonna get killed and that's that comes across pretty well i would say in both yeah no i mean there's even characters like like very important characters get cut in half with a whip with once with one strike of a whip it's a um you know there's a lot of people getting cut in half um so yeah and then in, in, in and then in addition to that just the whole general I mean, it's a tragedy, essentially. This this movie, yeah. and and while a lot of Usha is is you know superheroic to some extent, we're, we drew inspiration from many movies in which it's not as you know rosy of a depiction yeah. of that martial world. I think we were going for again, like we, we weren't basing it totally on Gulong, but we were going for more of that Gulong mood where you sort of expect like the, the movies that I was thinking of when I watched this were ones that number one were dark and number two had a really memorable emotional beat at the end that was downcast, not upcast, you know? Like, and so this is definitely an example of both those things where uh, it, it's, it's visually dark, uh, you know, just in terms of atmosphere, it's dark in terms of what violence means in the setting. It's dark in terms of what they're saying about human nature. Like, like just even like the good guys aren't even all that good really in this movie. Do you know what I mean? They're not as good as they would be in a lot of other Wuxia movies. Um, and, and it's, it, and also it's all against the backdrop of this terrible betrayal that the, you know, that this historical general uh, commits, you know, so it's against this. There's also this historical sort of tragedy unfolding in the background against all of it. So, so yeah, I think I. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Just I'm just saying the uh, the two adventures that we have in there. I think we 
I think we did a pretty good job of trying to bring that feeling into it. And whether it's the circumstances leading up to the characters or the, the player characters being involved in this adventure or even just the various things that befall them or could befall them as they go through the adventures without getting into any spoilers, I could totally see the adventures we created, depending on how the players interact with them, being a movie just like this. Yeah, it's a, we're definitely going for that style with it. So, so yeah, I think I think this is definitely a. Um, I, I I know we have a list of essential viewings, and I think we put this on that list. I'm pretty sure. If not, it's on the other list of movie. We have like a couple of viewing recommendations and reading recommendations. And a couple. I think we have o- over fifty movie recommendations. Oh, but, well, but what I mean is we have three different viewing and movie recommendation sections in the book yeah i think Uh, you're right i think we did include this one as uh, on that list so um so yeah so definitely the darkness and i guess the other thing would be the grudges uh which we'll probably get into with other movies in more depth but you know this is this and the next film are all about uh you know the the grudges that are you know just sort of driving a lot of the drama in the martial world. And I think that that's something that we really wanted to bring into the game. We brought it to a more personal level in our game. Our our grudges did tend to be more personal. A lot of the alliances tend to be more personal. Whereas this one is a little bit more focused on... It, it has the personal too, but it's more... You can you could sort of think of it just in terms of the sex and you'll, you'll understand what's going on. Um, True, although... Um, you know, in the first one, it is the personal vendetta of the, you know, the, the the villain that is driving them to, if I remember correctly, I think it said they took over the devil cult um, as opposed to creating it. I might be wrong about that, but it was them be getting kicked out of Wudang to begin with that, that created that grudge. And that yeah. literally was what, what drove the entire plot. And the second one, obviously is continuing from the first one and the grudge that she develops and wants to end. And yeah, I would say that uh, the last episode, we talked about this a little as well. And in one Arm swordsman and crippled Avengers, they have that we're having in this one. I think this is one of those things that is really quintessential Usha stuff. And I'm actually planning a video that I'm going to release hopefully in the next week, talking about um, some of the, key aspects of Usha, and this is one of the ones where I think it's hard to find, I haven't done a vast research about it or vast thought about it, but I think it'll be hard to find a really good Usha movie that doesn't have the element of revenge, which essentially is is a, a grudge in it. It's just so, such a deep part of the, the genre. I'm trying to think, I, so I know we had a conversation about this, and I'm trying to, re- I was, the thing that was hard for me is, I'm. I know that I've seen movies where I don't remember revenge being a, a part of them, or I don't at least not a big part. But I, I'd have to go back and actually watch and make sure there wasn't some grudge that got thrown in that I missed. Or do you know what I mean? But like the movies where I think you would tend not to see it would be ones like some of those earlier Cheng Pei Pei films where there's a lot of Cheng Pei Pei and another hero or two running away from the law and having to get from point A to point B. Um, but maybe if you sat down and examined them, there would still be a grudge in there. I don't know that. That might it's, it, it, but just off the top of my head. But I think I think it's either way. It's a, it, it's 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 a, it, it's one of the most delicious ingredients in wuxia. I think I think that would be the 
you know, and it's and it's the kind of thing that it's sort of what seems to drive a lot of the more introspective thoughts in wuxia movies and in wuxia novels where they where they sort of reflect on the cycle of grudges and you have heroes that are trying to escape from this you know so a lot of this movie what happens in this movie is she decides to leave her sect for love and he doesn't that's really the you know like he doesn't actually like he just he when they ask him to come and help them he goes and i feel like that's the real root of the tragedy in this is you know she's willing to undergo that gauntlet of torment to get out of the sect and and he just goes and sort of does his duty and and those are the two cru- crucial choices um but both of them are 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 characters who they want to be together but they're sort of stuck because of the grudges that exist and pervade the Zhang Hu. And, and so I, I, I don't know. I think, I think it's one of the things that kind of, it, it adds, you know, an emotional and a philosophical level sometimes to the movies and books. Um, sure. I mean, t- in, in my take on it is that I felt, I felt a lot more sympathetic to her by far because there was a, a key moment when she finally shows up. And basically the way I remember it is is he's like, why did you do this? And then she is like, do you trust me or not? Now, if he had been like, fine, I trust you, she would have been like, I didn't do it. And then she would have, you know, it would have turned out totally differently. But in that moment, he was, he didn't actually trust her and he actually thought that she did it. And that, so in my mind, you know, maybe she didn't necessarily need to massacre everybody, but at least she was being consistent, you know? Well, well, not just that, but you also got to think of the like. Again, it's 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 sort of all like the massacre seems to come out of nowhere too because it's a short movie, but like it's all all this stuff that she's just experienced before she gets there is I think a big part of it too, and um, I, and and like you're saying, it's that 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 bluebeard moment where you know, do you trust me? And he he says the one thing that he's not supposed to say that the audience has been told he's not supposed to say. And, and so, you know, so yeah, so, so yeah, she definitely does overreact, but what is interesting to me is every time I watch it, I'm sort of with you where I don't, in my memory, she's always more villainous, but then when I watch the movie again, I'm like, well, she, she has a moment of villainy, but then like, she's kind of instantly helping him again. And she's not really that ruthless. Do you know what I mean? It's just sort of like, uh, it's, and and I think that's another reason why the first movie's maybe a little better than the second movie too, because the second movie, this is more like the origin story, and the second movie is more like okay, now you have the bride with white hair terrorizing everybody. So, um, but yeah, so yeah. I is, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just saying I agree, and in, in the second one, she is for the majority of the movie the villain. I mean, she's really, you know, <laughs> not a good person for the most part. Yeah, no, she's. She, I mean, she's trying to slaughter Wudong, and she's uh, like deeply, deeply opposed to any man that they come across, and uh, and also they're kind of like they're kidnapping people, and you know they're brainwashing them, and you know there's just there's a lot of other stuff going on. So it's a you know she she it's a, it's it's a much and it's 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 a little bit again this is spoilery, but it's a when you the overall arc actually works because it's a redemption arc by the end of the movie. It's just that the way it's handled in the second movie, 
sort of obscures that this is a very cohesive story that's being told. Um, but, uh, but anyways, is there anything else that we need to add or say? I, I think we covered, I mean, we could probably keep going or, and bringing out little tidbits here and there, but I think we hit all of the, the most important stuff. Okay. All right. So, so again, the movies we covered today were Bride with White Hair 1 and 2. These are both available on Prime. And so you can go there and you can check them out. You can also get them on DVD and Blu-ray. I, I believe you can still get them. I don't know. I uh, I, I have my copies, so I don't got to worry about it anymore. But, uh, but I know that there's a... And again, I can't remember the name of the company, but there's a Korean Blu-ray that's really good. And, uh, and, and... I think is it I don't know if it was Tai Sung, but there's 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 a standard one that's out there that that's my preferred version to watch when I watch it. Um again though, the image quality on that one isn't quite as good as the, the Blu-ray. But I think in this case, you don't want the HD. I think the HD takes away from how the movie's meant to look. Um so it's like I, I this is totally aside from the point, but I remember many years ago I saw Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade on my uncle's HD TV, and it totally ruined the experience. It, 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 it it's a great TV, but something about that movie being in HD, everything looked different, and it didn't feel the same anymore. So, and I think this yeah. is one of those kind of movies. So, um, so yeah, so so I guess we'll we'll head out. We'll be back on, and until then, we will talk to you later. Of emotion, killing joy, cutting steel across your eyes. Are you dead or insane as you stumble through the Will you return to me?